Okay, friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy in the New Testament. 1 Timothy. So we are starting a brand new series today called Entrusted with the Gospel. We'll be looking at Paul's, what they're called pastoral epistles. And we'll get into this in a little bit later, but they're called the they're generally referred to as the pastoral epistles. And by those, it includes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And in a way, it's an unfortunate name because, as I had mentioned before, um, that uh, we, if you think, oh, they're pastoral epistles, this is probably dealing with stuff for church leaders and this doesn't involve me. And that's a very unfortunate thing because there is so much in these books, doctrinally and practically for all of us, uh, for every one of us in the church, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that it gets that name or at least that association. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to jumping into this today. And, uh, but before I do, if I could just say a huge thank you. It's so good to be back. I, I can't believe um, what a refreshing break it was to have the last three Sundays off. And uh, even leading up to this uh, months ago when the, the deacons were like, you should take some time off. And I was like, oh, mo- maybe two weeks will be fine. And they were like, no, you need to take three. They like forced me to take three. And I really appreciate that very, very much. Uh, I was ready to come back last week, but it was good to like hold off and not jump back in. And so, so having said that, uh, we had a great um, time together, Janet and I. We exercised a lot. We played tennis a lot. We played more tennis than we've played since before we were first married. Um, we were did, went on a lot of walks. I ended up running some. Dangerous. I did. I ran some. And then I was feeling so good. Huge mistake. You ever do this? You're like, your ego's writing checks. Your body can't cash. Like, I was like, because I ran track and cross country in high school. And I was like, oh, this is feeling good. I'm going to sign up for a 5K. The next five. So I signed up for a 5K on Tuesday. Boy, what did I do that for? That was a mistake. So, uh, but I, I'm going to be doing, and Steve's going to be joining me. He's going to be way ahead of me, but he's going to be joining me. He's going to run back. I don't know if you do this, but Steve's like an ultra endurance, you know, like he'll bike like 200 miles. 100? 120 miles. Like, so he's going to be running and like wanting to talk to me and I'll be like, ugh, ugh. So, uh, anyway, so it's been a wonderful time, and I don't mean to take up all of this right before the sermon, but I wanted to say thank you. wanted to say thank you for the, the leaders who said, take the time off, we'll figure things out. We'll get everything done so that you can enjoy your time off, and I loved it, and thank you so much. Thank you to Jesse for um, preaching those, those last Sunday. Is Jesse here? No, he's not preaching. He took a little... <laughs> he needed it after the last three weeks. Tired off those three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> anniversary oh happy anniversary to them so but thank you to jesse uh thank you to everybody else who volunteered to do to put things together the setup team and and everything steve for helping with sound and all of that and the musicians and just what a what a wonderful time and so uh so so anyway but i'm grateful to be back um my my biggest fear in coming back is is i forgot how to do this (laughs) it's been so long and, and I also had to put on pants today for the first time. <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow. Uh, they still fit. Maybe all that running is open. So today we're going to be looking at uh, and entrusted with the gospel, 
First, and uh, we'll be spending our time in First Timothy, and as we tend to do on these expository series, we're going to be hitting a lot of introductory material, and then we'll get into a few of the verses here, okay? So if it seems like this is really scattered in a mess, um, it's just kind of the typical thing that happens with first-time series in a book. We just have to hit, answer some of the questions like who and to whom and why and when and, and all of that, but before we get to that, let's read it. Um, and it could be that I'm just out of practice and I forgot how to do this. So, um, but I just ask you to bear with me. It's going to be a teaching time today, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. First Timothy chapter one, verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we take these next few moments to reflect on your word and to hear from you, uh, not only in this passage, but in various passages of scripture, we pray that you would teach us, um, that, you, uh, that you would be honored by our attentiveness that you would give us indeed ears to hear, that you would soften the soil of our heart to receive your word. And that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's start with some of the particulars. Who, whom, where, when, why, and what. Um, who is the author of this letter. Well, as we saw there right there in verse 1, is the Apostle Paul, the writer of the majority of the New Testament. And you're familiar with the Apostle Paul. In a couple of weeks, we're going to get into a, a, a deep dive into his life. We're going to do a whole biographical survey of him, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks when we get to verses 12 and 13. Uh, but we are generally familiar with the Apostle Paul. Remember Saul? He was a persecutor of the church. He was the one who was a, he was a Pharisee. He was breathing out murderous threats against Christians because uh, of their heresy in, in his thought and in his mind uh, because they were worshiping Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But the Lord got a hold of Paul's heart. Paul really didn't have much of a say in this. The Lord appeared to Paul while he was going with letters to kill Christians. And he knocks him off of his horse. He blinds him and he says, I have a plan for you. We have the Apostle Paul here. That is who is writing this and more on him here being Apostle here in a moment. To whom is Paul writing? He's writing to, as we saw there in verse 2, to Timothy. To Timothy, and we're going to get into a little bit more about Timothy here in a moment. Um, but if you notice that in verse 3, he says, As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any other doctrines. So one of the things that we can notice about Timothy right away here is he is a, a protege of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is... Uh, picked Timothy to be kind of like his apostolic representative of the church in Ephesus, which is a church that, uh, that Paul had founded and spent many times there on his missionary journeys. More on Timothy here in a moment. 
When was this written? Well, these are, if you're familiar with the, the Acts of the Apostle, Acts chapter 28, you have Paul imprisoned in Rome. After that, he is released and he continues on doing his ministry for some time. And this is happening sometime after that. Maybe the early to mid-600s, the Apostle Paul was killed mid-six, mid, excuse me, 600s, 60s, mid-60s A.D. And this is one of the last letters written by the Apostle Paul, maybe a couple of years before he had died. Why does he write? Well, the Apostle Paul is wanting to clean up some issues that are happening in the church there. And he covers a lot of different doctrines. And so what are the topics that are covered? Well, he's going to t cover, if you want to flip through as we kind of go through here, he, he talks about false teachers and that Timothy has to address some of the issues with the false teachers. Chapter 2, he talks about prayer and worship. How should worship be conducted when we're gathered together, when the church is gathered together? What's the role of men in this? What about women? That's also in chapter 2. What about the leadership over the church? He covers that in chapter 3. Talks about elders and then in deacons. Again, he talks about what are those who, about those who deconstruct their faith. He deals with false teachers again. What about relationships among people, the fellowship? What about older men? What about older women? What about younger men? What about younger women? What's the relationship? How, how should that be arranged? What about the benevolence ministries in the church? What about widows? How do you take care of them? All sorts of topics that he deals with in this, in this book. And, and we're really looking forward to getting to this and to, to see those. But why is he writing? He's writing to address all of the issues in the church, and he's doing it through his apostolic representative, this young man, Timothy, who is in some ways, he's, in a way, he's kind of the, the pastoring this church, uh, which is why these are called the pastoral epistles. But, in, but more specifically, he's, he's kind of the apostolic rep, uh, representative for the Apostle Paul. So uh, let's get back to the Apostle Paul here. Paul says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle. You ever thought about that word? You're probably a Christian. You're very familiar with the scriptures. You hear the word apostle often. But have you really thought through what apostle is? Have you studied what this is? The, the, the Where we get this word in English, it comes from the Greek word apostolos. So it's kind of like we just took the Greek word and we made, you know, just converted them to the English letters, and that's what we call it. But what does it mean? There is a couple of senses that you need to understand apostle here. There's two senses. There's more of a broad or generic sense, and then a very technical or specific sense. The broad or generic sense of apostle is somebody who's sent as a messenger. Somebody who's just sent with a message from the verb apostello. They're, they're sent out. That's kind of the general sense. That's just a messenger. But in the New Testament, it takes on an official, more technical sense as a delegate or ambassador or as an appointed, authorized representative became a technical term for someone who was sent 
as an official representative bearing the authority of the one who sent them, him or her. So which is, what, which is it here in this letter? In the, in the early church, it is referred to, it is often, now again in scripture, sometimes it's used in the generic sense, but it, you just have to read with the context, but many times it's used for an authoritative representative in the church. Which one is it for the Apostle Paul here? Well, what does he say? An apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's by command of God. So this is a technical term conveying the authority. Those who are authorized by Christ himself, commissioned by Christ, to represent Christ to the church. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus's ministry, remember we had lots of crowds around Jesus. And then he had selected some 12 to be his disciples. But over time, as you read through the, the, the Gospels, there were more and more people who were coming as disciples, which means learners. The number of disciples ended up being a much larger group than the 12. But then at one point in that ministry, Jesus took that 12 and he commissioned them to send them out to be his apostles. They had a different authority than the rest. You saw this even in the, uh, the early church. As the early church was established, it was those 12 minus Judas, we'll get to this here in a moment, that had the authority to teach what Jesus had commissioned them to do. So Paul is commissioned as an apostle. Now, Timothy knows this. As we get into this, Timothy knows who the Apostle Paul is. Why is Paul writing this to Timothy? Well, he's not writing this to Timothy alone. He's writing this for everyone to read this. Don't, don't think as we go through First um, and Second Timothy, don't, don't think that it, you know, Timothy's reading this on his, on his own alone. There's a sense in which Paul is writing to the entire congregation. He's speaking to Timothy, and he wants the entire congregation to overhear him. And so, in a way... He's wanting to establish here, not so much for Timothy, but for everyone else, his apostolic authority and what he's about to say. He's establishing his authority and credibility. And, and in so doing, reaffirming the authority Timothy has to do the directions that Paul wants him to do. Now, let me say this. Paul did not volunteer to be an apostle. The Lord Jesus, God the Father, and God the Son commanded it. No one volunteers to be an apostle. So let me, I want to talk about this, the doctrine of the apostleship or apostolic office today. After his resurrection, Jesus commissioned those 12, minus Judas, so it was 11, to be his disciples. John chapter 20, Jesus said to them, peace be with you, as the Father has aposteloed me, sent me, so I am sending you. I am sending you. Likewise, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then he says, therefore, go. They have a derived authority from him. 
to go and share this gospel message. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So what's the criteria for becoming an apostle? Well, as we study the scripture, we can't get into the full argument here, but just let me give you a quick survey. One, you had to have physically seen the, the physical resurrected Jesus, and you have to have been personally commissioned by him. Remember Judas, one of the 12 apostles who betrayed Jesus, and in his regret or remorse, not repentance, but in uh, regret, he took his own life. And in Acts chapter 1, they discuss his replacement. You remember this story? Verse 21. So some of the men who had accompanied us during all that time, they say, here's the criteria. We need to find a replacement for him. Beginning from John's baptism, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, until the day he was, Jesus was taken up uh, from us. One of these men must become a witness of the resurrection. You had to have, you had to have been when Jesus' ministry, you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And it's very interesting when they, in Acts chapter 1, when they're finding this apostolic replacement, they, uh, they present forward two people who meet this criteria. So they bring forward these two candidates. And it's interesting to note that they didn't say, you know what, 11 is good. We need, we, they go, no, no, we have to have 12. And the other thing that's interesting is that they say, when we're presented with two candidates, they didn't go, you know, they're both qualified. Let's take them both. No, just one. And so much so that they had to, they casted lots, because remember, this is before the Holy Spirit had come. They casted lots. And when they did, they prayed this. It's very interesting. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 1. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. So in some way, I know it's, in, you know, how, how to understand that the early church used these things like casting lots, but they understood this was the Lord choosing. So here, they had to have met the criteria, seen the physical resurrected Jesus and have been commissioned by him. Okay, but what about Paul? He's claiming this title apostle. He was not a part of Jesus's early ministry. As a matter of fact, he was an enemy of it. But Paul was called and commissioned by Christ himself. And Paul saw the physical resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Emmaus. Paul, Galatians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. Because apostleship does not come from man or through man. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Or Paul says this in Acts chapter 26. And in more of an expanded uh, telling of what happened in Acts chapter 9 with his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared for you to you for this purpose 
to appoint you as a service and a witness, a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. For I am sending you, he says. You do not volunteer. You do not volunteer to be an apostle. There's no application form to be an apostle. You had to have physically seen the resurrected Jesus and have been commissioned by him. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, in his argument to the, to the Corinthians about his apostolic authority, he's like, you guys know. I've been here doing my ministry among you. You know that I'm an apostle, not like these other false ones that are coming in. You know, and he says this. and He goes, in, in a rhetorical question, am I not an apostle? And the answer, of course, is yes. And in the next question is, have I not seen the Lord? Those two go together. So you get the point here. Let me ask this question. Are there apostles today? Let me, let me answer that. No. There, are no. there are no apostles today. Why, why, why spend so much time on this? Boy, he was, must have been thinking about apostleship a lot on his vacation. Uh, no, th this is really an issue. Still today in the church. And it really takes the form of two fronts. The one front, some will say, yes, there still is apostolic authority today. It's in the Roman Catholic Church. It started from Peter. It continues on through the papal authority and through the magisterium, the entire teaching body. So much. I was just reading about this this last week uh, about Roman Catholic teaching from Vatican II, also in the catechism. And I didn't want to spend too much time pointing this out. But they clearly state that the teaching office in the church, the pope and the magisterium, what they teach, their tradition, is on the same level of authority as Scripture because they're carrying forward the apostolic office. So that's one of the ways that this question of apostolic authority shows itself in the church today. But let me give you the other way. The other way is this new apostolic reformation, or NAR. Heard of this? Okay. Now, what they're claiming is that the apostolic office is gifts of the church and that the church lost that sometime after the early church, sometime after the New Testament. And we're setting about to recapture that new apostolic reformation. They want to reclaim the apostolic office. So they, they say there are apostles today. Both of these are just different approaches to this question about apostolic authority. About apostolic authority. Well, what, what's our view? Do, are there apostles today? No, there are not apostles today. The apostolic office was in that church age. So where does the Christ's authority then reside? Let me tell you where Christ's authority resides. Christ's authority on earth until his return resides in the apostolic testimony found in the writings of Scripture. So you don't need to look around today. Well, is, there, is the apostolic, is somebody, is this person an apostle? All of those, both 
within Roman Catholic understanding of the apostolic secession and also in the new apostolic reformation, both of them are attempting to subvert scripture. To subvert the inspired testimony of Holy Scripture. And indeed, when the early church was figuring out the canon of Scripture, which it, it wasn't like 300 years later they go, yeah, let's pick these books to be you know, the, our Scripture, our canon. No, they were like, can we trace all of this to an apostle? Can we trace you know, all of them? So Luke, well, Luke was a companion, a companion of uh, the Apostle Paul in his ministry. So he was kind of maybe Paul's colleague in writing the Gospel of Luke. John, disciple, Matthew, what, uh, John, apostle, Matthew, an apostle. What about Mark? Mark was Peter's cohort. You, you could trace everyone. Now, in the early church, they were, were trying to figure out. They had a couple of questions, you know, a couple of books. But what we have in the New Testament is the apostolic authority. You don't need to look for it in Rome. You don't need to look for it in the New Apostolic Reformation. Paul, an apostle. We're, we're three words in. So there's Paul. What about Timothy? Okay, let's go with Timothy here for a little bit. Let me have you turn in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 16. Timothy, his name means... One who honors God. Let me give you kind of a, a little sketch of Timothy's life. We'll start in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Again, Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, Acts 16, verse 1. A disciple was there named Timothy. Here we go. We're now introduced to Timothy. He is the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. It doesn't mention that he was a believer. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And perhaps because of that, Paul, it says in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So a couple of things to notice here in this passage. He's the son of a Jewish woman, and as we see in 2 Timothy, his, his mom was a, a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, so was his grandmother, was a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, but his father was a Greek, and so he was was apparently had come to believe in Jesus Christ before he even met the Apostle Paul. And Paul recognized in Timothy, this is somebody who I want to have serving with me in my ministry. And Timothy, to his credit, uh, must have been very eager to, to serve Paul. Because he was willing to get circumcised for it. Like, I mean, some of us have to sacrifice some things to go into ministry. Well, you got to hand it to Timothy there. Now, why? Wait, doesn't the Apostle Paul say, you know, you should not get circumcised? If Well, the issue is, is that Timothy's Jewish. 
And he knew that this was going to be a stumbling block as they were going to go on their ministry, especially as they were to go into synagogues, to have somebody who is Jewish, and how you know somebody is Jewish, even if they have just their Jewish mother is all you need to confirm. Because there's always, there's always a possible, how do I say this? Um, there's greater certainty knowing who someone comes from through the mother, right? Because you see it, and they come out. But So they say, well, if your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. And so Timothy had to be circumcised. Now, at the date of this letter, 1 Timothy, um, Timothy is in his late 20s, early 30s. What we read about in Acts chapter 16 is about 13 or 14 years earlier. Now, if you do the math, I know some are homeschooled, but if you do the math, that's 17 to 19 years old. 17 to 19. How many of you are close to that age? Some of, come on now. I mean, within like five years. Okay. <laughs> In the grand scale of things, I'm, I'm close too. How many of you are close to that age? Let's say 25. 25 or younger in here. Okay. All right. Timothy joined the Apostle Paul in his ministry when he was about 17, 18 years old. How many of you are that age? Let me just say this. Yes, the Lord can use you in ministry. How many times have as we'll get to this later in, in these, these letters, where Paul has to encourage Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. You have, he's appointing him as my, he's saying you are my apostolic representative to this church. You're going to oversee the appointing of elders, old, old people to help lead the church. But just because you're young, you shouldn't be looked, you shouldn't be looked down on for that reason. Timothy was often very timid and shy, and they, Paul had to regularly, he had to speak about how he shouldn't be timid, that he should be encouraged in that. Now, notice what, back to 1 Timothy here, notice how Paul describes Timothy, verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. Paul's close relationship with Timothy is described in these parental, familial metaphors. And, and I say metaphors kind of loosely here. Paul does this so often with Timothy that it's like a metaphor, but beyond a metaphor. And it really exp exposes the backdrop to their, to their relationship that they have had. He only uses this term. He uses it with, with uh, Timothy. He does it here. He does it at the beginning of 2 Timothy. He also uses this for Titus. And this is emphasizing Paul's role as spiritual father to Timothy. Perhaps... Because the only, the only spiritual authority that he, or spiritual instruction or nurture that he had experienced was on, from his mother or his grandmother. 
Remember, it just says his father was a Greek. It doesn't say that he was a believer like it says of his mother. So maybe the Apostle Paul is spiritually adopting Timothy. And that bond is so strong, he says, this is my, you're my child. You are my true child in the faith. Now, true here could be a reference to the genuineness of, of Timothy's faith. Second Timothy, at the beginning, chapter 1, it says, And I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. But I think it's also dealing about the spiritual nature of their relationship. Timothy was Paul's protege, most cherished pupil, but he was more than that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He's, he says, this is why, he says to the Corinthians, that is why I have sent to you Timothy. At one point in his ministry, Paul sent Timothy to Corinth as well. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. To remind you of my ways in Christ and to, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Or in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He goes on, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not of those of Jesus Christ. You know that verse, right? But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. What a tremendous close relationship they have. And, and I would say that this is, I put it this way, spiritual family is stronger than other physical or natural bonds and ties. Spiritual family is stronger than other physical or natural ties. Jesus even said, John's gospel begins, that to all who received Christ, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Which means when you are born again and you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, that you are now part of God's family. And you adjoin with all of those siblings in that family. And those bonds are stronger, deeper, more eternal than even our earthly bonds. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this. Remember, Jesus is going about his ministry while they were still speaking. The people, uh, behold, his mothers and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man and told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother, my brother and sister and mother. Your spiritual family is stronger either than physical or natural bonds and ties. 
And I know many who come from very strong family bonds. And that's wonderful. But I know some people who don't, who have had difficult family relationships. And then when they become Christians and come into the church, they realize I have just, I've become into a, a whole new family. Now they don't abandon their family. Indeed, becoming a Christian makes you pray more urgently for them to come to know the Lord. But what a gift that is that Christ brings us into his family and the spiritual family is stronger. And the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, it doesn't really have any mention about whether he was married. It, it, he, he clearly was unmarried when he writes to the Corinthians. Some speculate, well, he never was married and he was single, which would be kind of weird for somebody of a Pharisee at his age or stature. Perhaps some say because of that, he would have probably been married, but didn't have any children of his own. And maybe his wife left him after he became a Christian. Perhaps we don't know. But he, we know that he was unmarried and that he was childless at this time. And Timothy was his child, spiritually, in the faith. Next, let's look at God the Father and the Son. These greetings in these New Testament letters are so important. I know it, it may seem like something we would just read over and not realize. But notice how in those two verses, how frequently he mentions Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Three times. Three times he invokes the name Jesus Christ or Messiah Jesus in his greeting here. But it's this one I want you to notice. That Paul is an apostle by command of Christ Jesus, uh, by command of God our Savior. Now normally... In the New Testament, he would use, refer to Christ as Savior. What, what's, what's going on here? Well, I think Paul here is drawing on very familiar Old Testament terminology. Let me give you one. You can see this in the Psalms in particular. The Lord lives. It's hard for me not to say it from my childhood. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and may the God of my salvation be exalted. Right? God as savior or lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the god of my salvation salvation in the scriptures came from god but here paul shows that the work of salvation is by the triune god father and son and as we'll see also by the holy spirit the work of salvation is by the triune god father and son and the spirit from all eternity. Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he, as Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son obediently goes on behalf of the Father. 
Far be it from our mind should be any notion that Jesus was unwilling to go, but the father forced him to go, and this is some sort of divine child abuse. No. This is an eternal plan between the father and the son to redeem and to save. So that's why the apostle Paul says here, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. And so what is hope? Today we often hear or use the word hope as desire or wish. When you use the word, is that how often you use it and think of it, right? I desire or wish. I hope to win the grand prize drawing. Or I hope the team, my team makes the playoffs. But that's not how the New Testament uses the term hope. The Greek word elpis. Biblical hope is not desire or wish, but more like confident expectation and solid assurance. One commentator says this, hope is directed toward the future. Once we have received what we have hoped for, hope ceases. Romans chapter 8, verse 24. Thus the ultimate focus of Christian hope, according to the New Testament, is the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection from the dead, God's ultimate salvation of his people, and the resultant eternal life in a restored creation. At that point, we will live in eternal glory, centered in Christ Jesus himself, the hope of glory. This is all what's embedded here in these words. I'm, by, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior, God the Father, the initiator of this plan of salvation, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, the accomplisher of this salvation, who is our, our hope. And lastly, grace and peace. Here's the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're familiar with reading the New Testament letters, you read Paul's letters, and somewhere in those introductions, almost always, he says grace Grace to you and peace. Some form of grace and peace, right? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Titus and Philemon. Every place he says grace and peace. Two places. Two places. He adds mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. The other place, 2 Timothy 1. <laughs> so perhaps, maybe, maybe, the, Lord, maybe the, the Lord was through the Apostle Paul assuring Timothy that maybe he needed more than just grace and peace. What he needed was, what he needed was mercy. Now grace is descriptive of what God does in dealing with sin. And guilt itself. God's uh, with no, nothing deserving it or you know, initiating it on our behalf. He purely out of his grace chooses to save. And so this is 
uh, uh, what's included in these Christian greetings. Grace. Grace to you. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Mercy and grace, despite what we often think, they're, they're not synonymous. Mercy is in real world experience not getting the consequences for what our sins deserve. Let me let me explain. So our sins violate our relationship with our God and creator and Lord. But through Jesus Christ, that sin can be forgiven and reconciled and restored, taken away on the cross. But the consequence in real world life of that sin may remain. Okay? Mercy, on the other hand, would be God going out and, and removing the consequence. <coughs> he doesn't often, doesn't always do this. But sometimes he does. And perhaps Timothy, in what he was experienced, whether it was sin of his own or what he had to experience difficulty in ministry, he needed mercy. How often do we pray for God to be gracious to us, to forgive us? And we should. And we pray it, and we pray it knowing and expecting that because of the work of Christ and the assurance that we get from the gospel, that he, he grants that to us. But how often do we cry out for our behalf or for others for mercy? Lord, if you would be merciful. <coughs> Lord, we know that so-and-so is a believer in Jesus Christ. But they're experiencing this debilitating disease. Lord, if you would be merciful and spare them of that. Spare them of the consequence of the sin in this world. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given us. But if you would, in your mercy, spare. And perhaps, and I think... I don't think that there's any major theological reason why Paul doesn't include mercy in his other prayers for other people and only uh, you know, prays for it for Timothy as if, well, you should only pray for mercy for, for ministers or something. Wouldn't be bad. You could do that for me. I'd appreciate that. But maybe we take encouragement in this, that maybe, maybe we would pray for God's mercy. And use that term. Lord, that you would be merciful to me. Lord, that you would be merciful upon my family. Lord, that you would, in your mercy, act to save. Amen? Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord.